Good morning to all of you. It's a delight to be here again. I think the last time was six or seven weeks ago, Christmas and Old Year's, New Year's. And we've got this beautiful, gorgeous spring morning. And what a day to delight in the Lord. I'm reading this morning from Revelation chapter 2, the verses 12 through 17. I think back in August and September, we looked at the first two letters in Revelation chapter 2, and today and the next Sunday, we're going to pick up the third and the fourth letter. So Revelation 2, beginning with verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, My first point is simply about the introduction to this letter. And it's very short, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Very short, but I need to say four things about it so that we can understand what is being written to us this morning. First, it is written to the angel. Well, that's the same thing with all seven of the letters. It's written to an angel. And who are these angels? They are divine messengers. And this is the way the entire book comes to us, from divine messengers. I want to start off just for a moment by reading Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation, by the way, here's an aside. A lot of people say revelations. No, no. It's not plural, it's single. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John. Now, do you see what happens? God gives to Jesus, who gives to an angel, who gives to John, who writes to the churches. To the angel 
is a reminder. There is spiritual and divine forces at work. So this is not just something worldly. It's something spiritual and out of this world. And secondly, the letter is written to the angel of the church. Now, we are told earlier in Revelation chapter 1 that each of the angels can be compared to a star, and they are held by Christ. They live in the presence of Christ, the angel of the church telling us the church is in the presence of Christ. He is watching her, caring for her, and loving her. Thirdly, this letter is written to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now, all seven letters are written to the churches of Asia Minor, what we now call modern-day Turkey. And Pergamum was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was also a religious center, a center for pagan and emperor worship. And then the fourth thing we want to notice about this introduction, the title of Jesus. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I mentioned already Pergamum was the capital of the province, the Roman province of Asia. That meant the governor lived there. And in the Roman world, it was the governor and the governor alone who has the power of the sword. In other words, the power to condemn someone to death or to allow them to live. And now here comes Jesus to that political center where the governor lives, who claims to have the power of the sword. Here comes Jesus saying, I have a two-edged sword. The Roman governor is not the only one with the power of the sword. The power of the sword also belongs to Jesus. Now the actual Greek, let me translate it word for word. These are the words of the one having the sword. The two-edged, the sharp. Jesus, too, has a sword. He has the power of life and the power of death over all people, including Roman governors. In our second point, I want to raise up the fact that Jesus looks at this church and he offers a positive evaluation. Now Jesus is part of the triune Godhead and God knows all things and God sees all things. And so Jesus knows and he sees all things. And because of that, in each one of the seven letters, he uses the same phrase, I know. I know, I know, I know, I know. Jesus knows all things. He sees all things in his church, in his body. Now he knows three things as far as Pergamum, the church of Pergamum is concerned. 
First, the pagan world in which you live. Secondly, your faithfulness. And thirdly, your perseverance under persecution. First, says Jesus, I know where you dwell. The place where you live, where you eat, where you sleep, where you conduct business and work, where you shop, where you pay taxes, where you raise and educate your children. I know where you dwell. What exactly does he know about where they dwell? That it is an evil and wicked and pagan environment. I know what you have to endure. I know what you're facing every day. I know the temptations and the trials that confront you. I know all that surrounds you. Jesus makes it very specific. I know where you dwell. And what does he say about Pergamum? Where Satan's throne is. Where Satan dwells. Now that's an awful thing to say about any city or town, wouldn't it be? Imagine Fresno being described that way, or Clovis, or where we live in Visalia. That's not a compliment. Now there's three things that Jesus has in mind. In Pergamum there was a temple dedicated to Asclepion. If you know your Greek, anyone here know Greek? Okay, Asclepion is the pagan or Greek god of healing. And its symbol is a serpent. And you might have seen that in movies or old pictures, a serpent around a pole that has to do with medication and medicine and doctors and that sort of thing. The symbol of the serpent was found all throughout Pergamum. And that symbol symbolized healing to the pagans. Christians look at the serpent and they see something totally different. Since the Garden of Eden and throughout all of history ending here in the book of Revelation, a serpent is a symbol for Satan, for the devil. Secondly, also located in Pergamum, was a huge temple to the Greek god Zeus. And there was a huge altar. And that altar and temple was built because Pergamum was in a battle and they had victory in battle, and they attributed that victory because of their prayers to Zeus for help. So he was called Zeus the Savior. And again, Christians say, no, it's not Zeus, it's Jesus who is the Savior. And then thirdly, to kiss up to the Roman authorities, Pergamum had a temple dedicated to the emperor. It was a center for emperor worship. And to kiss up even further, they made a second temple and then a third temple. 
And of course, those temples make one declaration. Caesar is Lord. The Christian confession, Jesus is Lord. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells, a place of evil and wickedness. But he knows something else too, our Lord Jesus Christ. I know your faithfulness, yet you hold fast my name. In the midst of that evil pagan culture, all sorts of temptations, most people being the opposite of you in terms of worship and lifestyle, I know you hold fast my name. Now, by and large, all of these people in the church of Pergamum were pagan converts. And you can well imagine that their family, their friends, the people they do business with, and even some of the old desires of their heart were all urging them to return to the worship of Asclepion, or Zeus, or the emperor, or all three. But they forcibly grasp, they hold fast, says Jesus, to my name. Again, going back to Revelation 1, Jesus says that in his right hand, he holds the seven stars, which are the seven angels of the seven churches. And to hold something in your right hand means to hold fast, to hold securely. It's not going to slip. It's not going to fall. And in the same way as Jesus holds fast the angels and the churches, so they, the Pergamum Christians, hold fast to the name of Jesus. They remain true to Jesus. They know what was at stake. If you forsake Jesus, you forsake salvation. I've been going through the book of Acts, and there's that wonderful statement in Acts 4, Peter's speech before the Sanhedrin. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus, and Jesus is the only Savior, and to not hold fast to his name means to lose salvation. Jesus himself says, Matthew 10, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. But you... You hold fast my name. There's a third thing Jesus knows about that church in Pergamum. He knows that they face persecution and they endure. And Christ mentions Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, we hardly know anything about Antipas. There's a few stories in church history. We don't know whether they're truly accurate or not. But we do know that Antipas was faithful. As Revelation tells us, he was faithful to death. Legend has it, and here's one of the things we don't know for sure. He was slowly roasted to death in a brass vessel. 
kind of, of a rotisserie put over the fire. Again, we don't know whether that's true or not. But in the face of persecution and trial and death hanging over them, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. They remained faithful and true. Now let's jump forward 2,000 years to us here in North America. We're not surrounded by pagan and emperor worship like the Church of Pergamum was. Nevertheless, we have the same enemy, the same underlying enemy as the church back then, and it's Satan. And the false religions that surround us exert as much pressure on us to deny Jesus, to deny his name, as the pagan religions exerted on the Christians of Pergamum. Maybe you've heard this phrase before, maybe you haven't, but we live in a post-Christian environment today. And Satan has one goal, to make America thoroughly secular, to make the Christian religion irrelevant, to remove all mention of God. So public life, most of public life is conducted with no or only a passing reference to God, a superficial reference to God. I mentioned I was last here at Christmas time, and you know, many cities and towns struggle with this now. They have Christmas displays, but they hardly dare show a picture of Jesus or the, the manger or the cradle. Christmas without Jesus, that's ridiculous. In our public school system, students are not allowed to open with prayer or Bible reading. That used to be the case. Teachers who teach Judeo-Christian principles, they're told to be quiet or they're moved to a place outside of the classroom. I have a daughter-in-law who's a public school teacher. She says, I can mention something in response to a question by one of the students. But that's it, I can't evangelize or say something about Christ and God on my own. The candidates for president today, they all talk about their faith, their personal faith, but heaven forbid that that personal faith affects any policies or plans. You know, this is the time of the year because of the primaries coming up that we have all these political ads and there's just Seems to be hundreds of them on TV. And I've noticed something. The candidates all talk about being people of faith. Have you heard that? And then they're quick to say, but I uphold a woman's right to an abortion. 
Now, we started the service with two announcements, one about that dinner where we stand up for life. Wonderful. And then about standing in front of the Planned Parenthood Clinic, standing up against abortion. That's wonderful to hear. That's the opposite of what our world wants. Now, are we true, not just in these two things that I mentioned, but are we true to Christ's name like the Christians of Pergamum? Or do we bow in, cave in to the pressures of our post-Christian environment? Do we say, okay, God, you get Sunday morning. But the rest of the week, I'm going to live the way I want. I don't even remember who wrote this, but I came across a poem many, many years ago. I remember the title. I'd like to have a dollar's worth of God. One dollar. That's not much today, is it? I know there are stores that are called dollar stores, and for a dollar, you get a piece of junk, right? A dollar's worth of God. I hope that's not us. My third point, Jesus looks at that church of Pergamum and not everything is rosy. Yes, he praises them where they deserve to be praised. But there's also something negative that Jesus knows that he sees. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also or likewise, you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. You can look at that first letter, the letter written from Jesus to the angel, to John, to the church of Ephesus. You can look at the first letter. And Jesus praised that church of Ephesus that they did not hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. But remember, they also had a weakness. They failed in the test of love. They were orthodox, but loveless. Now this church seems to be the opposite. Lots of love, but they're not being orthodox. Now the story of Balaam and Balak we find in Numbers 23 through 25. And the Moabites, they saw that big horde of people coming from Egypt, going across the wilderness, and they were scared stiff. They had heard what God did through them, how he had put all those plagues upon Egypt, how they crossed the Red Sea. They probably heard about the thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai and about the manna and about the water and the defeat of Og and Magog and 
the other kings back then, they were scared. We need divine help. So they called for a prophet. Balak called for Balaam. Come here and I want you to put a curse on Israel. And he tried. Three times, I believe it was. On a mountain, on a high hill, overlooking that horde of Israel. He tried to curse and God changed his tongue, God directed his tongue, and out came not curse, but blessing. And Balaam, he didn't like that. He had been paid and paid well to put a curse on Israel. Maybe he had to give the money back. So he came up with plan B. Cursing didn't work. God wouldn't let me do it. This is what I want you to do, he said to Balak. Send your most beautiful young women to the camp of Israel and have them invite the men to the worship of our false gods, which includes sexual immorality. And 24,000 Israelites took up that invitation. Pagan food and pagan women accomplished what armies and Balak could not do. Now the Nicolaitans saw nothing wrong with what Balaam caused Israel to do. The Nicolaitans said to the people of Pergamum, the Christians of Pergamum, it's okay. It's okay if you get involved in the pagan worship here in Pergamum. It's okay if you go to the feasts, if you offer sacrifices, if you indulge in the sexual immorality. That's okay. In other words, they went along with the plan of Balaam. Now here's where the problem comes in. The church of Pergamum said and did nothing about this. They allowed their members to participate in pagan feasts and pagan sexual practices. How could that have happened? How could Christians step or steep or stoop so low. I'm afraid the church became like the city it lived in. I mentioned earlier there were three religions mainly in Pergamon. I'm sure there were a few others too, but these were the three main ones. And the city of Pergamon had room for all three. And I'm guessing that the ordinary person went to all three kinds of temples for worship. Asclepios and Zeus and the emperor. And there were some in that city who undoubtedly thought, well, we have room for a fourth major religion. We can add the Christian religion. We have three already. A fourth one is not going to make any difference. 
In other words, we can accommodate. And the church, it seems, the Nicolaitans at least, yeah, we have room for one more. We can fit in with the pagan religions in this city. Now, there are only a few guilty of talking that way and thinking that way, but the church as a church did nothing about this. And I don't know about you, but this should amaze us. The church of Pergamum was more than able to fight the enemy within the gates. She could remain true under trial and persecution, willing to die for his name, but they were not willing to fight the enemy within the gate. Evil inside of the church. The church of Pergamum, I would have to say, would fit in very well with today's culture. In our culture today, in America today, what is the greatest sin? The greatest sin is to be intolerant. And if you are a true born-again Christian, part of a true Bible-believing, Christ-confessing church, the world sees you, the world sees us as what? Intolerant. Intolerant. Why? Because we're not willing to accommodate another religion, another faith. We say there is only one religion and only one way to God. And it's Jesus. And there's only one Lord. And it's Jesus. And there's only one way to live. It's how we find it in the Bible. And then a fourth point, an exhortation, a plea from Jesus. The church has a problem. Jesus has the solution. Repent. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them or against you with the sword of my mouth. Now, what's the sword of Jesus' mouth? Hopefully you all know. The word of God. If you know Ephesians at all, the sword of the Spirit. And that word, that sword, is a double-edged sword. If you don't repent, it brings condemnation and judgment. If you do repent, if you do believe in Jesus, comfort and salvation and life. Now, how do we compare to that church of Pergamum? Do we turn a blind eye to sin in our midst? 
do we let it go unpunished and unchecked? Or do we say something? Do we do something about it? Are we willing to make compromises with the world? To go along with the world? To tolerate heresy? Do we allow and encourage our ministers to preach the truth? Or do we say, boy, I wish you would talk more about love and joy and peace and things like that? We end with the letter's conclusion, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to hear what Jesus says. We need to listen. And if we hear, that means not just hear, but actually doing it, actually following it. Jesus gives us a series of astonishing promises. To the one who conquers, here's the first promise, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now we go to the Gospels. Jesus disguised himself in his ministry at times. He says, don't tell anyone. Keep quiet about this. He's the hidden manna. He identifies himself as the living bread. And hidden manna, living bread, gives life. So his first promise, if you hear, if you listen, life. Life is what you get. And a second promise to the one who conquers, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, you know, when we have weddings and parties and anniversaries, special kinds of meetings like the ones that were mentioned, the one mentioned at the start of our service, you get an invitation, an engraved invitation. They didn't have printing presses back then. So guests to a party were sent a white stone, a white stone. For the Christian in this instance, means you've been invited. You've been granted entrance to the banquet, the heavenly banquet table. And on that stone is written a name. In the ancient world, it was the name of the person being invited. But we are told a new name. And that makes me think of Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham. Simon, whose name was changed to Peter. And that name, Abraham, and the name Peter, identifies them as being part of the kingdom, part of the heavenly kingdom, given a new name, part of the heavenly kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. and a name that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
To know someone's name in the ancient world implies a relationship. It implies power. It implies the ability to exert some sort of control. God gives the name and states his power, his control, his care over the Christian. Do we eat from the heavenly manna? We have a symbol of that coming up at the Lord's table. Have we accepted the invitation to come to the heavenly banquet? Have we been given a new name? Amen. Lord Jesus, we come to you. We marvel about your omniscience, knowing all things, and that you see all things. And as with Pergamum, you know everything that we face and everything we do. Let us be faithful, O Lord, under trial, and let us be true in our fight against sin within so that ours is that banquet, ours is the name, a new name from you. In Jesus' name, amen.